First Thessalonians 2, uh, what a text. It's full of a lot of things. Some of those things I'm not going to be able to cover. But this morning, um, as I thought about this text, and as I considered what would God have for us, Christianity Today, an article written by Mike Cosper came to mind. And the title of that article is Don't Make the church leadership crisis worse. Don't make the church leadership crisis worse. What comes to mind for you when you hear that? Don't make the church leadership crisis worse. In his article, um, Cosper explores the concept of moral and spiritual disenchantment. And disenchantment, uh, just for definition, is the feeling of disappointment or disillusionment with someone or something that was previously respected or admired. That's disenchantment. So after reading the article, uh, I took the liberties of categorizing this sort of moral and spiritual disenchantment into two categories. The first is our context. What is producing this moral and spiritual disenchantment? It's our context. The world we currently live in is explained primarily by material things. What you can see, what you can touch. It's explained away essentially the spiritual understanding and deafened or depressed within or suppressed within us an awareness to spiritual things. Many of us probably have that sort of understanding or connection, right? We know what it feels like to just wake up every morning and not think one moment about God or about the fact that your very breath and the life that you were given did not come from you. It came from outside of you. The second thing uh, that I categorized was our cravings. And so as human beings, we all desire to connect with the transcendent, whether you know it or not. There is a place in us, in our very souls, that was made for something outside of ourselves, something transcendent, something other than us. So therefore, whenever we see leaders, particularly in the church or even political um, outside of the church, they can become a means for us to connect with the God we really hope is truly there. So filling the void of that moral and spiritual meaning that our context, the water we swim in, naturally creates within us. So to further even illustrate this is in 2019, a Barna research group did a study and it said 82% of millennials, so my generation and even probably Generation Z, now see that we as a society, not just the church, but as a society in large, are facing into a leadership crisis. And this perception is influenced by the underlying sense of anxiety that is prevalent in many societies today. And the connected generation, or the millennials, um, recognize there is a deep systemic injustice happening, or there's a problem happening within the institutions and places that we inhabit that have leaders. 
And so that problem is what is going to confront essentially the world's future. And it doesn't take much for us to see that that's true, right? Like you could read a headline in the New York Times or the Tennessean or whatnot and find somehow, some way, someone who has fallen, who has made a huge mistake in society has removed them, canceled them, etc. The statement, the, the statement that the society is facing a crisis of leadership is due to the lack of good leaders among us. And so what is this? How does this even connect to what is happening in 1 Thessalonians 2? And maybe you picked up on it, is it seems like Paul is explaining himself to them. He's defending himself even. And what I want to say is that there's an important backdrop to this discussion of disenchantment that we can actually learn from this particular text. So many scholars actually argue that Paul's posture of defense in this passage is prompted by widespread false accusations resulting from his imprisonment, because he wasn't present with them when he wrote this letter to them. He was in jail. What was he, what was he in jail for? Well, he was in jail for the proclamation of the gospel and the conduct to which he had amongst the Roman society. So in chapter one, Paul expresses his gratitude to God for producing life within this Thessalonian church and their willingness to imitate him and ultimately to imitate God, if you see that in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. But however, when a community is suffering or when a community is facing shameful treatment or conflict, it becomes fertile ground for Satan. So again, that disenchantment, that oh, spiritual awareness, fertile ground for Satan to sow doubt, to sow distrust, and to, show diso to sow disillusionment. Now, what I want to say is that I'm not just couching actual hurt and pain from leaders into this like spiritual category that you just need to trust. What I am saying is that there is a real evil that wants you to continue to live within that disenchantment. Because the longer you live in that disenchantment and believe that there is nothing good that can come out of this place, the further you will go from God. And the, and the longer you will stay away from him, which is a win for Satan, which is a win for the enemy. And it's something that we desperately, desperately long to not be the case for you if you're sitting here today feeling that. And so Paul was imprisoned for this message, his message and his conduct. And essentially what they are perceiving and they're sowing about him is that he has had leadership failures. So the newly established church, which is fairly young, Paul spent four weeks among them. This newly established church, which Paul is thanking God for, is at risk now of questioning the very gospel that they had received because it could be portrayed as false. It could be portrayed as a gospel that was driven by greed, manipulation, public influence, and sexual exploitation, which you see in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. So this raises the unsettling possibility. What if the gospel was merely another cult ide ideology for the Thessalonians? What if it was just something that a leader came in and 
manipulated them and abused them for? What if it was just them being lulled to complacency, put to sleep by another person who could communicate clearly and had great charisma, but had no character and no heart in what they were proclaiming? Or what if it was intended to just exploit and manipulate the vulnerable, the weak, and the needy among them? I think I've covered my bases for most people in here who might be or have experienced those, sort of, those certain things from church or leaders. So this sense of disenchantment may resonate with your personal experience or observations of the cultural climate surrounding church leadership and the church today. You've witnessed failure, conflict, greed, exploitation, and other negative aspects within the leadership and the churches that can lead us to a sense of mistrust. So this then begs the question for us on what we're going to explore by looking through 1 Thessalonians 1, or 2, 1 through 12. So the big question is, in a world where people tend to be skeptical of church leaders, how can we actually figure out if a church has a healthy culture? In a world where people tend to be skeptical of church leaders, how can we actually figure out if a church has a healthy culture? Or in short, how do we decide if we can trust the church or not? How do we do that? So by addressing these issues and exploring these reasons for disenchantment and, and thinking through this question, we can actually gain a lot of trust back that we may have lost. So let's look together then at this question. In a world where people tend to be skeptical of the church and church leaders, how can we actually figure out if a church has a healthy culture? So point number one, in a healthy church, Jesus produces real connection. So if you're looking at your Bibles, we're going to kind of take a flyover of 1 through 12 really fast, and then we're going to dive deep into verses 5 through 8 and 9 through 12. So <clears throat> the separation between li the life of the church leaders and those in their care in our modern age is actually really astounding particularly in large metropolitan areas like ours. I can't say that in small towns, maybe it's true, but it seems more prevalent in large metropolitan areas where you have larger church congregations, that there is a separation essentially to the leaders of the church and the actual congregation. So the pastor or church leaders have become a sort of celebrity creating an unintentional or even sometimes intentional veil between those in their care and themselves. And there's a deeply impersonal culture plaguing the church today because of that very thing. The impersonal culture has ripple effects into the life and the formation of believers, and we were not saved by an impersonal gospel. God did not send an impersonal Savior. And Jesus did not disciple impersonal disciples. 
So there was a real connection between Jesus and his disciples, between the early church apostles and their people, between the church and their leadership and one another. There is a real connection. And the entire gospel is birthed in the context of real connection. It's not just abstract. It's actually meant to be a thing that is very, 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 very involved in your life. I would say five more varies, but just you get my point. And as we explored last week, the gospel comes to us in power. And that power doesn't simply enter us and pass through us and go somewhere else. No, the power of the gospel comes to us in the spirit of the living God, taking up residence in us. And like a good interior designer, the spirit transforms us from inside out. So what does this have to do with Jesus producing a real connection here? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is where if you have a pen or a pencil or something, I want you to look at something with me. So when the gospel comes to us individually, it draws us out of of self-absorbed isolation and into self-giving community. So Jesus takes those who were far off and he draws them near. He brings them to himself. This nearness is extremely important to this text and to the health of any church. So just let me show you. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, if you have a pencil underlined, you yourselves know... In verse 2, look with me. It says, as you know. In verse 5, it says, as you know. In verse 9, it says, you remember. In verse 10, it says, you are witness. And in verse 11, it says, you know. Six times in 12 verses, Paul expresses some form of you you know. The people he was in in his care, the people that he was close to, you know. He recalls their physical presence, relational proximity, and real connection to him. If you recall in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul mentions how they became imitators of him and of God. And I want to suggest to us, for Paul to express to them their need to imitate him, it doesn't mean that he was just egotistical or self-absorbed, but that he was actually present with them. He wanted them to imitate him because he was so near to them and because he was near to Jesus. Therefore, wanting them to get nearer to Jesus, not because he was a mediator, between them and Jesus, but because his very life was about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says in verses one through four, I in my boldness of our God, our God, we proclaimed to you. He was very, very concerned with God. So Paul was actually imitating Jesus by being with them. And there lies the principle Imitation takes proximity. Imitation takes proximity. And proximity provides real connection. 
When you're close to somebody, when you can bear their burdens, when you can have a conversation with them, when you can laugh with them, you begin to foster real connection. And even more so in the church, when you're bound together in Christ and you're in proximity with one another, encouraging one another, proclaiming to one another, speaking as if Jesus were actually in the room with you, and you are living out that real connection, because if I think I can look out into this room and see that not all of us came from the same mother. We all came from different backgrounds and different places, and the only reason we're in this room together, if you are here, is because of Christ Jesus. So, Paul's whole appeal to them in verses one through four are completely irrelevant and worth every bit of disbelief if, if he wasn't actually present with them. Eating, sleeping, talking, crying, laughing, teaching, praying in a place. As he mentioned to them, we came to you. And when we came to you, it was not empty. It was not in vain. God filled them. It didn't say Paul filled them. In verses one through four, he talks about God filling that emptiness. That vainness that it says in verse one is filled by our God there in verses two. And the God who gave them much boldness in the midst of conflict is the one who through Paul came to them. So Paul speaks of suffering and shame as if these people knew exactly what he was talking about. They weren't oblivious or aloof to it. They knew exactly what he was talking about when he said, we suffered and it was shameful and we came to you in much conflict. And even the appeal that you see in verse 4 that Paul gives to them has to come from a place of real connection to them. That appeal isn't just communicating urgency, like, oh, I appeal to you. No, he's leaning in and he's saying, I appeal to you. There is a comfort that he's drawing them into by this appeal. And for them to receive the comfort of the gospel message meant that the messenger was perceived to actually be there. For them to receive the comfort of the gospel message, the messenger actually had to be there with them, in front of them, sharing life together. And it was not for the pleasure of man that Paul came to them. It was for the pleasure of God experienced in their midst. There is, a, there is a real sense of utter change within the culture of a church leadership or even in the culture of a place. Whenever the leaders are there not for you necessarily or themselves, but they're there for God to be produced in you. God is the end all, be all, the goal to which we even gather to this place. So therefore, for leadership, they should be there for God to be produced in your midst, not for you to build them up and to make them the celebrity, but for God to be here and to be real and to cultivate Jesus Christ and his glory. So... In a healthy church, 
Jesus actually produces real connection to where I can stand here with you and you know me, not just me here preaching to you, but you know me outside of here, outside of this place, so that when I preach this thing to you, you can say, this is real because he has been there with me. And it is for God's glory that we do this together. So not only do we have in a healthy church, Jesus producing real connection. Now we're going to get very specific with Paul. And Paul says here in point number two, in, the, in a healthy church, Jesus produces a motherly affection. So look with me now at verses five through eight. For we came to you with word, not with, we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, through, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own child, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So one of the chief complaints of recent leadership failings, and I say this from personal experience as well, not just reading headlines and tabloids. One of the chief complaints of recent leadership failings in the church has been connected to domineering leadership, a forcefulness, a demanding based on status and entitlement. Now, what I want you to circle is the word never, and then I want you to place a negative sign over it. And then after that, circle the word but and put a positive sign over it. Because Paul will do this now in 5 through 8, and he will do it in 9 through 12. So why do I want that? Why do I want you to do it? What's about to follow in these verses 5 through 8, or 5 through 12, are two sets of negative statements in connection to positive. And so it's fitting, actually, um, that in this first section, verses 5 through 8, they're couched in motherly affection. So it's fitting today that we land on a text like this that speaks of the gentle, affectionate care of a mother. So when church leadership and even church culture has the Jesus of the Bible at the center of it, real connection happens and the natural outworkings of that real connection in all aspects of life, it creates in the church what Paul describes as a nursing mother. So mothers and their children have a special relationship. There's a type of connection between them that requires each to be completely all in. Am I right? Like you got to be all in as a mother with your children. The child is vulnerable. The child is weak. The child is needy. The mother, when she looks down at the child in her care as they cry uncontrollably, doesn't say, well, you're an exceptional communicator. 
Your words have a way of captivating audiences, right? No, she doesn't come with flattery towards her wailing and crying child, but she sees the child. And as they are crying, her words and her actions are motivated to care and to ease their anxious heart. The mother in her care doesn't look at her young infant and think, how can I extort the most money out of you? I mean, your little blue eyes, they're really great, but how can I get as much money as I possibly can out of you? Rather, the mother spins herself. So too should leadership. And even more, the church be a place not of greed, but of overwhelming generosity. A looking at the weak, the vulnerable, the needy, the broken, and not saying, how can I exploit you and extort you for money? But how can I just give and give and give? And as I'm giving, I'm greeting you in the name of Jesus Christ and easing your anxious heart. So think about seeking glory, even in relation to a nursing mother. Does a mother expect to garner glory from the little child in her care? To get praise from that little baby? No, the child is incapable of praise. They're only dependent on the mother. So the mother is spent without strings attached, expecting nothing in return from that little child. So too must leadership in a church culture be about no strings attached. I'm being spent and I don't expect anything in return from you. But I thank God, chapter one, when he produces within you the type of return that is not because of me, but because of Jesus alive in you, producing in you something. It's different. The one culturally relevant comparison I feel like that is the strongest is actually the use of power. You see there at the end when Paul says, we could have demanded to you as apostles. So Paul says that those demands actually were uh, warranted. Why? Because he was sent in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus. But his power isn't being used in a manipulative and domineering way. And oftentimes I think that we can actually view power as a negative thing, as something that if given to people will only abuse. Remember the cultural context and the waters to which we swim in would actually tell you that's the case. The more, some, the more power someone has, the more they're actually going to abuse you. The more they're actually going to probably manipulate you and not be in this thing with pure motive. There's some truth to that. We're all mixed, a mixed bag. None of us are Jesus walking perfectly in power, right? But the aim to which we have been given power is not to abuse. And what we see here with Paul 
is that it's actually meant for us to be in flourishing. Our power is supposed to garner flourishing and build up, not to abuse. So many of you have actually probably experienced abuse at the hands of power. And this is a grievous sin, is grievous. And I'm really, really sorry. I just want to say that. But Paul gives us power in the context of a nursing mother, which takes on the posture of self-emptying rather than self-serving. So where does Paul get this sort of posture from? Where do we obtain a posture like this? So over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is interrupted and his agenda is interrupted for those who have nothing to offer him, but need everything from him, right? So think with me for a second actually about the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Imagine for a moment the panting pain and agony and sheer shame that Jesus was experiencing. And in a moment, between gasps of breath, a thief turns to him and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, the son of God who has all power and authority given to him hangs on a tree. And instead of using his breath to call down angels to take him down from that tree, he uses his power to do what? He's hanging on a cross. And what does he do in that moment when that thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He uses his power to offer the thief a home. Life in the kingdom. Jesus used his power and resource in the midst of suffering and shame. Paul is in the midst of suffering and shame to meet the need of the thief. The thief's very need was a home, life in the kingdom with the king. And instead of the king calling down angels to take himself off of the cross, with his breath in pain and agony, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Andy Crouch uh, once said, power is life. And flourishing power leads to flourishing life. Of course, like life itself, power is nothing, worse than nothing, without love. But love without power is less than it was meant to be. Do you see that happening on the cross? Jesus has his power. He's hanging there. And I know many of us have heard love kept him there. Love for you, love for me. 
he still has all, a power, all power and authority given to him by the Father. But his love and his power kept him there. And in his love and his power, he said to the thief, you can have life and life with me. The apostolic power is like a nursing mother. It is the secret sauce, essentially, to this section. Gentleness and power are two things that if melted together are a recipe for flourishing. This gentleness is at the root of any leadership then. It finds its foundation in the words, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So a text like this summons all of us to a posture like a nursing mother. Not just the leadership, but all of us to a posture like a nursing mother. Gentleness should mark the totality of our lives. But the beautiful thing about encountering the living Christ through leadership and church culture is that he creates within you a gentle severity. A gentle severity. So that brings us to our third point. And let's look at verses 9 through 12. In a healthy church, Jesus produces fatherly direction. A gentle severity. So, says here in verse 9, if you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel to you. Now, this is fascinating, actually, is that Paul says we worked day and night not to be a burden to any of you, but he came to them to relieve burdens. So, I feel like I'm speaking to myself here, but I'm not here. I shouldn't be here to be an extra burden or to think this people, this place, they just need to serve me. If anything, this is pushing leadership. And if you're desirous of leadership in the church to say, I am here to unburden. I am here to toil and to labor, not so that you can serve me, but that's so I can serve you. So back in verse 10, it says, you are witness and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul ends the previous section expressing how he not only proclaimed the gospel to them, but he affectionately desired to give them his heart. You see, when you stop or when you step foot into a church where Christ is, you not only get the word of the gospel, but you get the very real connection 
expressed through mother-like gentleness and also father-like direction from leaders within that space and from people within that space. It's not enough for a church leadership to be known for simply being really nice guys or for church as a whole to be known as a really nice church. No, the gentleness in this context is for our formation. And spiritual formation requires direction. And direction is given by trusted, known, and deeply caring leaders, brothers, and sisters. Earlier, I read to you a quote from Andy Crouch about power leading to flourishing. How can one know how to flourish if not directed? Well, I guess you could know. Our culture would tell you, look within yourself and you can figure out how you can flourish. Try it. That's my suggestion to you. I don't say that tongue in cheek. I, I mean, try it. Expend it to its extent, its fullest extent. And then I want to say, come back here when it's done. Because it has an end. And that end, I'll let you decide. So how can you know how to flourish if not directed? Since the garden, we've been pretty awful actually at directing ourselves. We, time and time again, believe, did God really say that? This is why we need healthy leadership. I'm not saying we need me or we need John. We need healthy leadership. We collectively, together, need healthy leadership and church culture to help us hear together the voice of God to help us hear together the voice of God. And what Paul is expressing to us here is affection inherently encompasses direction. If I actually cared about you, if you actually cared about me, you would want to be involved in helping me in wisdom and discernment decide what is God actually calling me to do. That butts against everything that we're taught. You're the captain of your ship. You're the master of your fate. What I'm suggesting is that this is a communal effort, that we in and of ourselves cannot just determine by ourselves the direction to which we can go. The Bible is written in a context to a people that are headed to a place together. There are individuals made up within that. I'm not saying to lose who you are and your personality and what, but I'm saying that God is gathering together a people. And if you don't like people, then I'm not quite sure that you're really going to like Jesus because Jesus is about gathering people. So come back, come back in. There is, there's much happening here that we need to pick up that we need to pick up on but I'm only going to look at the like a father metaphor that Paul gives us. 
So we're going to get really sentence and grammatically technical here. I don't normally love to, to just do that, but we're going to do it. So if you love English or you love grammar, here we go. There are three participles at play in verse 11, exhorted, encouraged, and charged. Each one of these words points back to the word became in verse 10. So as Paul became like a father to them, they or Paul became like a father exhorting. Paul became like a father encouraging. Paul became like a father charging them. Do you see that? So those three words are all connected to the word became and what Paul became like. So what that means is that when we exhort, it comes from a place of devotedness to God. Where do I get that? Where do I get that from? Look back at verse 10. Verse 10 says, holy, righteous, and blameless, devout, is the holiness. So when Paul says, I exhorted you and I became this to you, he is exhorting them from a place of devoutness to God. Not devoutness to him, but devoutness to God. And when we exhort, it comes from a place of never seeking to wrong the person we exhort. He came in righteousness. We never seek to wrong the person we are exhorting. And when we exhort, it comes from a place of integrity or blamelessness that is free of blame. And so on with encouraging and charging. It comes from a place of holiness when we encourage. It comes from a place of righteousness when we encourage. It comes from a place of blamelessness when we encourage. So you see that giving direction like a father means that we come alongside those who step into this church with affection and care. It says, this is the fatherly aspect speaking, I am with you in this. You are not alone. Go for it. I'm right here. And when it comes to encourage, we infuse courage to the weary, to the weak, to the burden, to the emotionally taxed, to the burned, and to the bruised. We come alongside them and we pick them up. Because in a world of words that are used to break down and destroy the church leadership and the church itself should be a place where there is no one, I mean no one at risk of leaving this place not encouraged. And finally, like a father in charging, this means to express to those among us who are barely hanging on. A work is started in you, and Jesus will complete it. For those of us who are barely hanging on and walked in this morning and feel like, I'm not in the faith, 
Jesus doesn't care about me. You showed up. You're here. And he who started a good work in you will complete that work. And if you don't leave here with a sense of knowing that and actually feeling that, I'm sorry. We need that to happen for you. And I pray that God would do that for you today, right now, in this place that he would fortify your soul and your heart to know that Jesus is holding on tighter to you than you could ever work your tired, worn hands down to. He is holding you. Stop working so hard. Receive him. Receive his goodness. So we charge for those who are barely hanging on who though, for those who are in the midst of suffering, who are lost in their sin and guilt and shame. And we charge them that Jesus is worth it. And he says to them, to all who are weary and need rest, it is not wrong for you to walk up to someone and in gentleness and in empathy, sit with them. And when they're expressing something to you, just say, let me pray. And in the midst of your prayers, as the Spirit of God is working in you, you give them direction. You give them hope. You give them a sense of certainty that God is with them. Oftentimes we just think, I'm going to listen to this and then I'm going to tell you what I think. What if it became such a thing that it wasn't just, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to wait and hear what you're saying and then give you a response. But it just, we as a people just said, I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to feel what you're feeling. And then I'm going to pray the very words of God over you, to you. And we trust that the spirit of God would actually minister through our very words and give a fatherly like direction and charge to the person in front of us. What if that was something that happened? So charging isn't a stamp of approval for Christian cliches. It's a commitment to saying you are not alone. I've been there and I'm right now with you. And we are together in this and Jesus is worthy. So all of this comes from a father's heart. You need both. You need the gentle affection of a mother coupled with the direction of a father. And that, Paul says, is what directs us to live in a manner worthy of God. So this entire section, 1 to 12, is couched in the kind of transcendence needed to restore us from disenchantment to hope. God or Christ is referenced nine times in these 12 verses. How is it that a church leadership or a church culture can truly embody all that we've witnessed here from the pen of Paul? Through a living encounter with the God who is really there. Earlier I said the God that we hope that is there. Well, the God is really there. And we can do that together by loving and following Jesus with our minds, our hearts, 
in our hands. The beautiful thing about this particular passage is that Paul was incarnational. He was there with them. It took his whole person. It wasn't just part of him. It was all of him with them. The reason he can say the things that he's saying to them is because he was there. And so I'm suggesting to us all, show up, be there, come together. And then I love this beautiful vision of a congregation that Eugene Peterson puts out. He says, a congregation is composed of people who, upon entering a church, leave behind what people on the street name or call them. A church can never be reduced to a place where goods and services are exchanged. It must never be a place where a person is labeled. It can never be a place where gossip is perpetuated. And before anything else, it is a place where a person is named and greeted, whether implicitly or explicitly, in the name of Jesus. A place where dignity is conferred. A healthy church is a place that restores dignity through proclaiming the live, <coughs> proclaiming and living the gospel of Jesus through real connection, through motherly affection, and through fatherly protection for the glory of God. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would meet us now, that you would do this, that for anyone among us now who is hurting and bitter and, and broken and disenchanted by the idea that a church could be a place of beauty and of flourishing and that leadership could be trusted and nurturing and caring, God, I pray now that you would speak profoundly to them that you would call them out of their bitterness and into a healing place, to a place where you are real and you are there. And God, I pray for those among us who are just looking in, who Jesus is, is just another man, that they would see that this place, that you are real, you are alive and that you are beckoning and calling them to come to you, that they can lay their burdens down, that they can come as they are and they can bring their sin and you will make them clean. And so we thank you for your word. We pray that it would stir us to love and good deeds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.